Good morning and welcome to our Sunday morning service. Welcome to our Sunday morning service. Welcome to our Sunday morning service. All the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out, who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counsellor, who has ever given to God, that God should repay them. For from him, and through him, and for him, are all things to him, to be the glory for ever. Amen.
Good morning. Before we went into lockdown, we were looking forward to welcoming some new members into our fellowship. And at some point in the future, we hope to do that in person when we're all together again. But we do want to welcome them as best we can before that day. So this morning, I'm going to pray for them and ask God to bless them and to make them a blessing in this fellowship, even during this period when we can't meet together in one building. So let's pray. Lord God, we've been reminded already that your wisdom and knowledge are deep. Your wisdom goes way beyond our own shallow understanding of things, and we praise you for that. We praise you that in our confusion and cluelessness, we can trust you. You see the bottom and the top and the beginning and the end of this strange period we're going through. You're not surprised by any of it. In fact, you are carefully at work in all of it. So we're glad to be able to trust you. We're glad to be able to hold on to the things we do know, that you are strong and good, that you are with us, and that you will never leave us. We hold on to these things, and we face the future with confidence, because your wisdom and power are perfect. Your love is never failing. And at this time, this morning, we particularly give you thanks for one another. Certainly, uh, we give you thanks for our brothers and sisters around the world who we have never met. But specifically today, we pray for the brothers and sisters you have given us in this local church. We thank you for our new members, for Morna Walkington, Twala Andrino, Gareth and Esther Fitzpatrick. We thank you for each one of them, for what you have done in their lives, bringing them to faith in Christ, carrying each of them through difficult times in their lives, and giving them gifts and abilities to serve you. We thank you for each one of them. We look forward to the day when we can welcome them face to face, and we pray for them now, that even while we're not meeting in person, we can be a blessing to them, and they can be a blessing to us as we pray for one another and serve and encourage one another in other ways. Even now, will you help us to care, carry each other's burdens? We pray that for every member of this fellowship. And we thank you that your word and your Holy Spirit are not bound by distancing rules. We thank you that your word and your spirit can reach us and strengthen us and cause us to grow in our faith and obedience just where we are. And so this morning we ask you to speak to us through your word. Come by your Holy Spirit and fill us with love for you and love for your people. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to have a Bible reading now which shows us God's great power to reach out and change a life, even the life of an enemy of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, the book of Acts tells us about a man called Saul, 
a man who began to destroy the church. He dedicated himself to destroying the church. But God had other plans for Saul. Julia is going to read from Acts chapter 9. Acts 9 verses 1 to 19. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptised, and after taking some food he regained his strength. Let's join together as we sing in praise of the God who can save his enemies and turn them into his willing servants. Only a holy God could do such a thing.
what is the most wonderful thing God has ever done? As we think about that question, we might consider a few different answers to the question. Maybe we'd say the greatest thing God has ever done is creating the universe. Or maybe the greatest thing was when God the Son took on human flesh to be born as a baby. Those certainly are wonderful things. They're mind-boggling things. But the passage we're going to read this morning points us to a different answer. In Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul tells us the most wonderful thing God has ever done is to create the church of Jesus Christ. According to this passage, the church is something we could never have dreamt up. It's something we could never have achieved by ourselves. According to this passage, it's the church that gives the devil the shakes. The existence of the church shows the devil God is too strong and too wise for him. So then, if you belong to the church, you are part of the greatest artist's greatest work. Back in chapter 2 of this letter, we learned that as individual believers, we are God's handiwork. And here in chapter 3, Paul takes us a stage further, and we learn that the church, the joining together of all those who belong to Christ, that is an even greater handiwork of God. We're going to read in just a moment from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, down to verse 13. But let me just remind you of the context of what we're about to read. Last week, we looked at the second half of chapter 2. In that passage, Paul gave us the facts about the church. The church is a body of people who in Christ have been reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. In terms of your identity in Christ, that means you belong to a new humanity. Those are the facts of the matter. That is what the church is. And now in chapter 3, having explained the facts to us, Paul can't help reflecting now on the wonder and the significance of what God has done. So chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace, given me through the working of his power. Although I am less 
than the least of all the Lord's people. This grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. This is God's Word. And one of the things that stands out in this passage is Paul's personal amazement that he gets to be part of the church. There's a kind of boyish delight that keeps bursting out in this passage. Like Paul is hopping from one foot to the other as he thinks about the fact that he, Paul, has a part in the greatest work of the greatest artist. Now, that might not be how you and I tend to think of our involvement in the church. Thinking about the church might not get us bouncing up and down with delight. But maybe as we listen to Paul this morning, maybe we can catch a little bit of his wonder of being part of this new humanity in Christ. Maybe as we look at this passage, we can begin to have a new commitment to the church. Maybe we'll see a new value in it. Maybe we can gain a new desire to invest ourselves in the church. The reason I say Paul's delight is bursting out in this passage is because he clearly hadn't planned on saying these things. You can see that by looking at verse 1. At the end of chapter 2, Paul has described the church as a temple, temple made of living stones, people being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. And it seems that when Paul wrote down, sat down to write this letter or to dictate it to his scribe, whichever way he did it, it seems that Paul had planned to follow that description of the church with another of his prayers for the Ephesians. We saw one of his prayers in chapter 1, and at the end of chapter 3, Paul includes another prayer. But that prayer, it seems, was supposed to come here at the start of chapter 3. Notice how in verse 1, Paul begins, for this reason. Then at the end of verse 1, he goes in a different direction until in verse 14, he picks up again with, for this reason, and then comes the prayer. So verses 2 to 13 are an outburst of enthusiasm that he, Paul, gets to be part of the church, this unequaled handiwork of God. And what is it that sets Paul off on this burst of enthusiasm? It's his comment in verse 1 that he is the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. You Gentiles are the Ephesian Christians. And Paul is literally a prisoner as he writes to them. 
He's a prisoner in Rome waiting to be tried before Caesar. And what is it that Paul had done wrong to end up in prison? Well, he had infuriated his own people, the Jews, by preaching about God's new humanity. The good news that in Christ, Jews and Gentiles are one people, heirs together of God's promises. And to understand how incredible that is, and how even amusing it is that Paul, of all people, would preach that message, we need to remember what we heard earlier from the book of Acts. Acts describes the ambition that used to drive Paul back when he was known as Saul. In those times, a zealous Jew would thank God every single morning that he had not been born a Gentile. And there was no Jew who was more zealous than Paul. And Paul saw the message of Jesus as so much of a threat to Judaism that his burning ambition was to destroy the church. Acts chapter 9 says his attitude, attitude to the church was murderous. He traveled around the country trying to stamp the church out. But on the road to Damascus, as we saw, the risen Jesus confronted Paul and incredibly, amusingly, Jesus said to Paul, I have chosen you as my servant, Paul, and guess what? You're my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. You tried to destroy my church because it unites Jews and Gentiles into one people of God. And so now your calling is to be a living, breathing testimony to how I can change people and unite even sworn enemies. As Paul remembers that commission from Jesus here, he sets off on this burst of enthusiasm. In verse 2, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me, me of all people, for you of all people. It's a little bit like the owner of a bank taking a notorious bank robber and making him manager of the bank. That's what it's like to make Paul the apostle to the Gentiles. But in Paul's case, he was truly changed. After he met Jesus, he became so committed to this work, he was willing to suffer years in prison for it. Never mind severe beatings, which he also suffered, and a whole lot of other painful things that came with the work he was doing. And here in this passage, Paul shows why he has such boundless enthusiasm for the church. He's come to realize the church is the outcome of God's master plan, and it is the greatest display of God's wisdom. First of all, the church of Jesus Christ is the outcome of God's master plan. In verse 3, Paul mentions the mystery made known to me by revelation. In the New Testament, the word mystery, it doesn't refer to something you and I have to puzzle out and try to solve for ourselves. In the New Testament, a mystery is something we could never have figured out for ourselves. But we know it because God has revealed it to us. 
So what mystery is Paul talking about here? What is it? He could never have figured out, but God has revealed it. He explains it in verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel, through the good news that Jesus died to save us, through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. In other words, the mystery is all that Paul said in chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. The reality of one new humanity united in Christ Jesus. In verse 5, Paul says, people in other generations didn't know this mystery that's now been revealed. And if you and I are at all familiar with the Old Testament, we might want to question that. Is it really true, we might be asking, is it really true that people had no inkling about God uniting Jews and Gentiles into one people of God? Didn't God promise Abraham that all peoples on earth would be blessed through Abraham, meaning one of Abraham's descendants? And didn't the Old Testament prophets look to a future time when all nations would come and worship Israel's God? Yes, those expectations come up plenty of times in the Old Testament. So how can Paul say the church was a mystery to previous generations? Well, it was a mystery because in the church, all peoples have full and equal standing. In the church, there are no second-class members, no lower-tier members. In another place, Paul will say to Christians, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that was a mystery, even to those who knew that all nations would be blessed through a descendant of Abraham. They knew God would accept Gentiles, but they hadn't reckoned on God creating a new humanity where all people have a full and equal standing. They assumed that God accepting the Gentiles would mean they became second-class Jews. And last week, Steve illustrated that assumption perfectly by showing us a diagram of the temple in Jerusalem. Not the original temple built by Solomon, but the rebuilt one. The court of the Gentiles was out on the periphery of the temple. Sure, Gentiles could come and worship there at the temple, but they were kept very much at a distance. They were very obviously second-class worshipers. Worshipers from a Jewish background could get much closer in at the temple. The message was, if you're a Gentile and you want to worship our God, okay, we'll let you in. But when you're in, you're just barely in. And we will keep reminding you of that. But the church blows away those kind of distinctions. When Jesus died on the cross and God tore the curtain of the temple in two, he was symbolically throwing open the door into his presence. And he was throwing it open equally for all kinds of people. 
Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor, male and female, old and young, formally educated and formally uneducated. Think of whatever distinction you want. Skin color, ethnicity, temperament and personality. List all the things that divide us outside of the church. None of those things divide us in the church. Not in God's eyes. All those who turn from sin and trust in Jesus have full and equal membership in Christ's church. All have a full and equal welcome in God's presence. Down in verse 12, Paul, from a Jewish heritage, can say to these Ephesians from a Gentile heritage, in Christ, we, all of us equally, may approach God with freedom and confidence. Now, to its shame, the church has not always seen itself the way God sees it. Throughout its history, the church has often lost sight of this aspect of its identity in Christ. It has treated some of those who are in Christ as if they're second tier or second rate. It has sometimes elevated one skin color over another, or one nationality or one type of social background over another. But what we need to see is, when that happens, it is a denial of the church's identity. It's a failure. It is not the way God sees the church. So what the church has to keep relearning is that the new humanity described in chapter 2 is God's master plan. Where different people become one united people in Christ. Equal members together, equal heirs together of God's promises. That is the master plan. On the other hand, a church where everyone looks the same and talks the same and smells the same and comes from the same sort of background and takes the same approach to things, that might be our ideal because it's comfortable for us, but it is not God's ideal. So if you are a Christian, expect that in many cases, the only thing you will have in common with other church members is that you both belong to Jesus. Expect that and learn to take delight in God's plan to do things that way. Our first reaction, I think, is often to bewail our differences. But instead, let's learn to delight in them, simply because God delights in them. In the New Testament, he has made known the mystery that he delights to welcome and unite all kinds of people in Christ. And when you and I run into differences among ourselves, let's have confidence that our unity in Christ is enough. We can be realistic about this. We can admit our differences cause frustrations and challenges sometimes. 
But if a church full of all kinds of people is God's master plan, and it is, then you, you and I can have confidence. Our unity in Christ is powerful enough to keep us together. It's enough not only for us to live with our differences, but even to appreciate them. So just think for a moment. Think of someone in this church who is different from you. There's got to be somebody who comes to mind. And as that person, or even more than one person, as they come to mind, you may also be thinking of times that your differences have caused tension between you. You've butted against each other. But as you think about this now, are you willing to accept it was part of God's master plan to put you together with that person in this same local fellowship? Will you ask God to give you an appreciation for His handiwork? Not just in saving you and in saving that other person, but his handiwork in putting the two of you together in one body. If you've had rocky times with that person in the past, will you begin again? Thinking of that person and seeing that person in light of this passage of Scripture. And even before we can meet together here again, Will you make a move towards that person this week? Contact them. Maybe you can start by admitting the problems you've had with each other in the past. Then begin again. Knowing it is God's plan for you to be in fellowship together. Knowing it wasn't an administrative glitch on God's part when he put you together in this church. Will you do that this week? Commit to it and then see it through for God's glory. Some of the problems we have with other Christians are due to sin, of course. But many of the problems, and maybe we don't see this often, many of the problems we have are due to the fact that we want those other Christians to be just like us. So this week, let's ask God to help us love and enjoy His master plan to bring all kinds of people together in Christ. Paul has grown to love God's master plan. He's grown to love the irony that God chose him, the least likely candidate, to preach to the Gentiles, verse 8, the boundless riches of Christ. In verse 7, he calls it the gift of God's grace that he was given this job. It's like he's saying to the Ephesians, me, can you believe it? Isn't God good to turn me from an angry guardian of my people and my heritage and my traditions into a willing servant of this good news that's for all peoples, from all backgrounds. 
And that launches Paul into the second point of this passage. The church of Jesus Christ is the greatest display of God's wisdom. It's not just God's master plan that he loves. The church is the grand exhibition of his wisdom. When I was growing up, my family went a few times to the ideal home exhibition in Belfast. It came once a year, and you could go there to see all of the latest kitchen gadgets and washing machines. As I think about it now, I'm still not sure who of us exactly was really interested in all that stuff. Maybe we just went because we had free tickets. But we've probably all been to an exhibition of some kind. Maybe a car show, an air show, an art show. Our boys have been to a skating exhibition where a professional turned up to show off all the tricks he could do on a scooter and to sell lots of t-shirts. So we all know what exhibitions are. You get to see the best of something. And here in verses 8 to 13, Paul says the church of Jesus Christ is an exhibition of God's wisdom. Who is this exhibition or this display for? Well, verses 8 and 9 underline what we already know. It's a display for all humanity. In the middle of verse 8, Paul says, This grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. Yes, Paul was sent to the Gentiles, but his message is for everyone, including Paul's fellow Jews. That's the part we've already seen. But look down now to verse 10. God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. The church displays God's wisdom to spiritual powers. Both angels and demons. Even to hostile spiritual powers. This is the fourth time in Ephesians we've come across this phrase, the heavenly realms. This is not heaven, it's the realm of spiritual powers, good and evil. It's the realm where spiritual warfare takes place. We saw in chapter 1, the risen Lord Jesus rules the heavenly realms. Satan and his dark powers are under Christ's feet. But we also saw in chapter 2, for the moment, Satan still has a degree of power. He has his own little temporary kingdom. He rules those who are outside of Christ. But here Paul says, every day, Satan is being confronted with God's manifold wisdom. That wisdom of God is being displayed to him. How? through the church. Not the political power of the church, not the wealth of the church, or even the size of the church. Those are not the things that display God's wisdom to Satan. It's the reality of very different people made one in Christ Jesus. 
That is what shows Satan he is no match for God's power and wisdom. Satan loves to divide people and disrupt relationships. He loves to make us look down on one another. He loves to see prejudice and division thriving among human beings. But as Satan sees God building a united people, one new humanity in Christ, as he sees all of us, as Paul puts it in verse 12, approaching God with freedom and with confidence together, not because of our cultural background, not because we share the same skin color or income level, but just because of our faith in Christ. As he sees that, Satan knows he is out of his league. He knows he can't win. He can't even compete against the God who can create a people like that. And the church is God's creation. It's not something that grows out of human effort. Back in chapter 2, verse 15, Paul said God created this new humanity. And here in chapter 3, Paul implies this new creation displays God's wisdom in a greater way than the original creation. If you look at the end of verse 9, Paul speaks about God who created all things. That original creation was good. It was monumental. But verse 10 says God makes known his wisdom through his new creation, the church. The church is the beginning of a new creation that will one day expand to become a new heaven and earth where all things in heaven and earth are united under Christ. First you and me united in Christ, then one day all things united in Christ. Notice the word manifold in verse 10. Through the church, God shows his manifold wisdom. Manifold means varied. Complex, multifaceted, diverse. In the Greek language, the word was often used to describe a bouquet of many different flowers. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this same word was used of Joseph's coat of many colors. What's the point? The point is the rich variety of people in the church reflects the rich variety of God's wisdom. That he could see if someone like me and someone like you and someone like Paul and put all of us together like a glorious bouquet of flowers or a beautiful coat with many colors woven together. The point is, as fantastic as it is, that God can change a life, that he can make Paul or you or me alive in Christ, it is even more wonderful that he can place that one life among many others, all of them so different, even those who were sworn enemies in the past. He can put them together into one body that is more beautiful than any number of isolated Christians. 
That shows the manifold, the complex, multifaceted wisdom of God. The poet Gerard Manley Hopkins looked at nature and he said, glory be to God for dappled things. He looked at multicolored skies and animals, different markings on fish and birds. And he said, glory be to God for that beautiful variety. And here in our passage, the Apostle Paul looks at the church in all of its beautiful variety. And he says, glory be to God. But as we saw earlier, sometimes instead of praising God for the variety, you and I would rather try and get rid of it if we could. In the 1980s or 90s, some church growth guru came up with what was called the homogenous unit principle. And the idea of that was that churches should aim to reach out to just one kind of people. Maybe it was white middle-class people, or maybe it was young Asian people, whatever it was they chose. And the logic of the homogenous unit principle was it's easier for a church to grow when it takes that approach. And maybe it is easier to grow that way in terms of numbers, because that caters to our sense of comfort when we can be with people who look and dress and think just the same as we do. But however comfortable that might be, it is just reinforcing unholy division among us. It's a denial of God's master plan for the church. And it fails to display God's manifold wisdom. So on those days when you and I wish the church was full of people who are just like us, on those days, let's remind ourselves what a loss that would be. How it would fail to display God's artistry to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms and to the watching world. Because it's not just Satan who notices it's not just angels. For those men and women who have eyes to see, the kind of church we've been talking about is an attractive church. It doesn't really impress anybody if you can love and serve and sacrifice for people who are just like you. But if you can do that for people who are unlike you, people who are your natural enemies even, then at least some people are going to want to know what on earth is going on. And so Paul says to these Ephesians in verse 13, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Don't be upset, Paul says, because I'm in prison for my work bringing the gospel to you. See it as part of your glory as members of Christ's church. That I, Paul, who used to be your enemy, would pour out my life for you in this way. 
would willingly accept suffering for your sake in this way. See that for what it is. It's a sign that you are part of the greatest artist's greatest work. Paul is saying, only God could turn me into a man willing to suffer like this for people I used to despise. When you see me this committed to the church, recognize it as God's handiwork and your glory that you're a part of it. And I think by implication here, you and I can apply this to any sacrifices we make for the sake of the church of Jesus Christ. Maybe especially those times when we sacrifice our own preferences and our own comfort in order to love and bear with our brothers and sisters in Christ. As you and I make those sacrifices, we are glorifying the manifold wisdom of our God. We are participating in his master plan. What verse 11 calls his eternal purpose. To create one new humanity, united by the blood of his son, Jesus. United with a bond that goes way, way deeper than our temperament or our income level or our cultural background. When you and I begin to celebrate this aspect of our identity in Christ, we're already growing towards our future destiny. That destiny is described by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. He's shown a vision of heaven. And John says, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing round the throne and round the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. As the angels look at that great multitude around the throne, they're moved to praise God for his wisdom and his power. Because they see the great multitude, the church of Jesus Christ, is the greatest artist's greatest work. And through faith in Christ, you and I have a place in that great multitude. And through God's amazing grace, we have a part to play today. As we love and serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. So this week, let's ask God to increase our love for his church. In all of its variety. And let's thank him now together for his amazing grace to us. That each of us have a place 
in his church. Let's sing together. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I find a place to stand. Thanks be to God, glory be to God, that all of you who are baptized into Christ 
have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen.